Hey, Rarecast listeners, join us for Global Genes Live, a rare patient advocacy unsummit, September 14th to the 25th. This two-week virtual event will feature a variety of interactive and educational events, meetups, workshops, and performances. Whether you're a rare disease veteran or new to the community, we invite you to connect and engage with us and others through interactive activities. To learn more, visit globalgenes.org forward slash live. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The debate over pricing of therapies often centers on the question of value and how to best determine it. The consulting firm Charles River Associates took an interesting approach to understanding the way payers view the pricing of rare disease therapies. Instead of asking them about pricing in terms of value, they asked about it in terms of fairness. We spoke to Andrew Paris and Matthew Majewski, both vice presidents with Charles River Associates, about how payers view the pricing of rare disease therapies, how context changes perceptions around pricing, and why they began questioning payers about the issue of fairness. Andrew, Matthew, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. We're going to talk about pricing for rare disease and curative therapies, Uh, a recent study you did on the payer perspective, and what is fair? Maybe we can start with fairness. Uh, I think there's a tendency to approach the issues of pricing around the concept of value. Why did you choose to frame it around fairness? Yeah, so I can I can take that, Danny. Uh, this is Andy Paris with uh, with CRA, and and that's a great question. You know, the the lens that is sort of most often um, uh, applied by by manufacturers around. Um, pricing decisions and how they um, how they contract with payers for access is is indeed sort of value driven. They look at um, the value of their therapies and um, how how well it um, meets unmet needs and um, how it stacks up against um, other products in terms of efficacy, et cetera. Um, but recently, as um, I'm sure you're aware, there's been a lot of discussion just around um, these. Uh, in higher priced therapies that are um, either one-time therapies to uh, to cure a disease or uh, potentially uh, addressing very uh, unique, um, rare conditions. And uh, these therapies have relatively small um, patient populations that are affected. And um, in, in sort of keeping with the effort and, and research uh, costs that are uh, are needed to, to develop these therapies for the small populations. The manufacturers are, um, in some ways, looking for um, you know ways to to recover those costs once they get to the commercialization stage. So uh, they tend to have higher uh, higher costs associated with them, um, and it, along with that, there are reimbursement um, and coverage decisions that payers have to make. And if these therapies are bringing 
um, bringing value and, and you know, tr uh, treating or addressing unique uh, conditions, um, they, they are, are largely going to be covered. So the question comes in, well, is, um, you know, is, is price really a constraint or not? And so um, Matt and, and, uh, and I and other colleagues began looking at the literature on this, and it, it turns out there's a um, fairly vast literature in behavioral economics around how fairness comes into play when thinking about decisions um, that you know, may have uh, a limited basis for comparators or where um, there's some question about um, whether the, the sort of the basis for the pricing decisions ought to uh, at least acknowledge that um, for one part of the transaction there there may be uh, fairness issues. So we're not we not are uh, we're not thinking of this as a, a a new way to price products so much as a new factor to uh, take into account when uh, when products are being priced. And what? What's meant by the term fairness? Did you provide a, a definition to the survey participants or was the assumption everyone knew what that term meant? And and do you run into the same problem you have with the term value? It's fairness for who? The payer, the patient, the drug maker? Yeah, I think that issue comes into play whether you're talking about value or the concept of fairness. It depends on the perspective um, so value means different people, like uh, in the context of uh, sort of clinical, uh, you know, clinical value, um, depending on whether you're looking at it from uh, a, a payer perspective or a physician's perspective, um, and uh, factoring in things like the, the the budget impact. But when you kind of bring fairness into the into the picture, it is largely sub subjective, and for that reason, it can, you know, it can be a lightning rod to, um, you know, to, to say averse reactions to how um, manufacturers are, are pricing their products. And, you know, we're not um, thinking about or focusing on those extreme cases where, you know, clearly there's price gouging and we all have heard um, those stories and could could probably name names associated with those things. So it's not it's not that kind of you know fairness in the sense of uh, these sort of ex extreme bad behaviors. It's it's more in the context of you know given that there is a, a spectrum of, um, of of what might be considered fair subjectively by um, a broad range of stakeholders. How do you think about bringing that perspective and that lens? into the discussion around pricing, uh, particularly in situations where um, without it, uh, there, there may be um, uh, situations where payers are not going to necessarily um, say not cover a product because they are bringing such high value. So there's got to be some kind of um, countervailing uh, influence or, or, um, or factor to uh, to bring price in line with something that's um, that's reasonable and acceptable uh, across the board. How did you go about conducting this study? Yeah, so we wanted to to um, to gather the views of a number of different stakeholders. So um, you know, the, we we had prepared to talk a bit to, today about about payers, but 
Um, there were uh, a couple of other cohorts that we spoke with. So we, we uh, interviewed 50 payers from large plans, um, uh, something like 160 physicians and about 145 um, patients. Um, and for the, for the physicians, they were uh, screened to have some association with or have, have um, some involvement in treating um, rare disease uh, patients. And similarly with the patients, we screened them to include a, a cohort where either it was patients themselves who um, had the condition or affected by the condition or family members or caregivers. So we wanted to have people who were informed about these um, therapies that uh, treat rare chronic conditions and or um, kind of curative uh, curative therapies. Um, we we applied a relatively straightforward survey approach. It wasn't a complex sort of um, discrete choice design or conjoint design. We just essentially walked them through a series of questions where um, first we defined archetype therapies that provided the respondents with enough detail about um, the condition and the therapy that um, they had enough to go on to to be comfortable telling us what they thought a fair price would be. Um, and then once we uh, were able to uh, to establish or capture what the respondents thought a, a fair price would be uh, for these archetype therapies, we then varied aspects of those archety archetype therapies. So if you, you kind of um, kind of look look at some of the, the uh, the things in in the paper that we varied that we we wanted to test relevance for perceptions of fairness. We introduced things like you know this therapy now instead of just being for treating adult patients, it would be uh, appropriate for treating uh, pediatric patients, or instead of it being for a rare condition of fifteen hundred patients, it would be for a um, an ultra rare condition of, of say two hundred patients, or um, Another example would be um, the, the condition that's being um, treated for is, is a severe condition, um, but not life-threatening versus a severe and life-threatening condition. So there were a number of, of aspects or parameters associated with both the therapy and the patient that we, um, we varied in order to try to understand what the drivers of perceptions of fairness would be for each of the stakeholder groups. The archetypes you used were one was a, a, a chronic therapy, the other was a, a curative therapy. Why that mix? Well, you know, as, as you you might imagine, the um, the the ongoing um, nature of a of therapies to treat a chronic disease, even if they're sort of very very effective and they're um, they're bringing substantial patient benefits. If they're such that they're um, going to be uh, repeated, um, say once a month or once a quarter, and the patients are essentially on them for life, there there's a, a sort of a, a different perspective on that from certainly from the payer perspective around the budget impact versus a uh, a therapy that essentially cures a um, a severe but debilitating condition. Uh, either you know it could be through z uh, gene or cell therapy 
but it's it's curative and the patients are 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 essentially um, relieved of symptoms for their lifetime or or some proportion of the patients with the conditions are completely relieved of the conditions so those are really two two different situations where you get a lifetime of, of benefits um, for um, for say a, a, a severe condition versus getting those benefits but still having to be on therapy and we just wanted to understand kind of the relative value and I think Matt can can talk to uh, a bit um, how those values were um, you know were uh, were held by the different stakeholders and sort of what they looked like relative to one another before we get into that I just want to ask one other question about the the format uh, Pricing decisions are usually made around some reference point, a, a cost relative to existing therapies or some other construct. In this study, there was initially no context provided to the question of fairness for the pricing of the therapies. Why was that? Well, in it, initially, that's true, right? So um, the the archetypes that we descri described a bit earlier were first introduced with very little context. So the idea was to, to try to get, uh, in effect, sort of an unblemished um, uh, reaction to those archetypes without the benefit of, um, it, say, an individual or maybe even multiple other factors that might come into play. But the, the other um, reason is that in, in most cases, the therapies that um, we have been encountering more recently and have been working with, with clients on um, for for developing pricing strategies don't really have comparators. So a lot of times there's a, a there's effort to go into saying, well, what are appropriate analogs for those therapies? But because they're um, they're often used to, um, to treat or have been developed to treat a very specific condition, and often it's the first product to treat that condition, there really aren't. Um, good clinical uh, or economic comparators, um, so they're you know they're kind of not um, you know not not necessarily ideal. So the idea was to uh, present these therapies in like uh, the context of them being unique and providing unique benefits, but then varying other aspects of the situation like the the level of clinical improvement that they do in fact bring or the type of patient population that would be affected, but not so much around the benchmarks or references of other therapies because, again, in these situations, they're likely uh, and, and often are not um, good comparative therapies to, to, to look at. Well, Matthew, let me, let me ask you, as you looked at the different variables, the context you asked payers to consider, what had the biggest effect on increasing their willingness to pay a higher price? We ended up testing a lot of things to see if there were any bigger or smaller effects, Danny. And some of the biggest ones were around the size of the population. So our baseline uh, archetype tested a population of 1,500 patients. But if we pulled that population down to 200 patients, we saw that payers actually jumped up about 20% uh, for a chronic disease or 13% for a, uh, a curative disease. So that had a, a pretty large effect. 
Another large one was uh, on the severe, uh, the severeness of the disease. So the, again, the archetype was severe and life-threatening, but if we just made it severe and no longer life-threatening, that meant that the perceived fair price dropped by 20% uh, for chronic disease and almost 30% for a curative disease. So th those are two of the biggest ones. I'd say the third biggest effect was also whether it was in pediatric patients. So uh, the again, the archetype uh, served uh, or, or stated that they was going to treat uh, patients who are on average 50 years old, uh, so adults. But if we asked about uh, children instead, we noted that the price jumped up uh, by about 13% to be a, a fair price for a chronic disease or 23%, so even higher for a curative disease. And what effect in general did, did curative versus chronic have in the way payers considered uh, value of, of, and fairness of pricing? Sure. So the baseline price, uh, so that would be just exactly as the archetype we tested. So uh, that's uh, a, a product that, uh, or a, a disease that has um, uh, severe and life-threatening effects in the population of 1,500 for adult patients. Uh, if that was treated chronically for a rare disease, the perceived fair price was about $240,000, the payers thought. However, if instead that was a curative therapy, so you didn't need to take it monthly or weekly, you just got kind of a one-time injection or something like that, the curative price was around $693,000. So that's about a 2.8 times difference between the two prices. Uh, and, you know, we'll, let's just call it three times different. Uh, and so so they kind of saw a little bit more value if you only received a one-time injection over, over curative therapy, over chronic therapies, that is. What did the, the study suggest about payers' attitude towards pricing rare disease therapies overall? So in general, I think we can take away that, that payers uh, found uh, curative therapies to be, you know, three, three times as much as, as, as rare disease therapies. Now, some manufacturers may actually, uh, you know, t tout pricing uh, uh, even higher than that at, at something like five times. We've seen a number of manufacturers kind of state that number. Uh, and so the, the fairness uh, levels kind of showed us that uh, payers don't necessarily value uh, curative therapies potentially as, as much as the manufacturers hope they will. Uh, and it also kind of told us that there is, you know, that, that payers do see some value here with, with, you know, with these products that have lots of, uh, of unmet need. Uh, you, you know, we weren't necessarily going into this expecting that they'd, that they'd state, you know, almost a quarter of a million dollars a year was, was a fair price. Uh, but, but that is kind of what the findings say is in rare diseases where there's no other therapies and they're potentially, you know, life-threatening, even a quarter of a million dollars seems to be fair. That that multiple for a, a curative therapy is, is a, a bit surprising in the context of what we've seen the early gene therapies being priced at, the, the one-and-done therapies. Does it suggest anything about where we may be heading, uh, particularly as there are some rather high-priced therapies expected to be coming towards approval? That's right. And so even though these gene therapies are, are attempting to demand quite high prices, the payers kind of perceive fairness, I think, based on how long the patients are sticking around their plans. So payers are often quite wary that, that they might pay for one of these curative therapies, uh, but, but they know that their patients churn through on average, you know, every two or three years. 
Hence why I think that, you know, three times multiplier we talked about earlier is, is, is in their heads. But if we look at something like a five or a 10 times multiplier between the, the chronic therapy and the curative therapy, they're, they're not valuing that as much because that patient might move on to another payer and, and they wouldn't have been paying that if it was chronic anyway. Uh, so manufacturers probably need to consider that and, and the lifetime of the patient and how they move through the payers uh, is part of, you know, what, what, what they consider to be value for their product. And is any of that, do you think, attributable to the open question about the durability of these therapies? That's, that's probably absolutely right, that uh, these uh, clinical trials aren't being tested for, for the five or 10 years. Uh, there's a lot of outcomes-based contracting out there to try and um, surmount the fact that there's limited clinical trial data, um, but, but it just doesn't replace the fact that um, you know, that the, the, the product may not work uh, and, you know, the payer, uh, the, that patient may move on and, and see lots of benefits. That patient may have no response. Uh, and so that lack of clinical trial uh, awareness and the lack of kind of how these products are going to work in the real world has got to have some effect on, on the perceived fair price. Are there any takeaways here for drug developers as they think about making the case for the price of their therapies or, or patients as they think about making a case for why they should have access to a drug? We think there's probably um, some semblance of, of relationship between the value uh, that a manufacturer prices their drug at and the, and the fairness. So the relationship there would be if, if the manufacturer sees that there's a lot more value in their eyes that the product offers, but the payers and the patients only see value at a lower level, the delta between those two numbers is likely the effort that the manufacturer needs to put in in terms of education. Uh, and so if, if they you know, uh, test uh, their own products and see that their fairness level is you know, at the $250,000 point, but they think a $500,000 price is fair, uh, they're going to need to tell the world why that is uh, and put a lot more effort into education. Otherwise, they may see some challenges, uh, both from the payers in terms of uh, how much education they need to do and, and how much and what access they get and um, from from patients as well and that there might be some ramifications from a um, um, uh, PR aspect. Andrew Paris and Matthew Majewski, both vice presidents with the consulting firm Charles River Associates. Andrew, Matthew, thanks so much for your time today. Thank Good afternoon. Good. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.